One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You're listening to The Real Story with me, Julian Morica, and this week we'll head to Lebanon. The dance mix from Tripoli's up-and-coming musician DJ Maddy Karame. Unlike other occasions, though, this week his musical event took place on the balcony of a third-floor apartment which was surrounded by thousands of people who were there not to have a good night out but to vent their anger at the government. It's not just Lebanon's second city of Tripoli. Thousands have been taking to the streets in the capital, Beirut, as well as in other centres. They've been waving the national flag in an extraordinary show of unity of the people against a government they view as corrupt and self-serving. The minimum, minimum. To go to schools. I think that all those in the government and those who have power are thieves and they should leave us alone because we have uh, we don't have our basic human rights. We don't get we don't get anything from them like not even medication, like none of that even education is like it's like very expensive. All these years that you know it's still the same. There's no electricity, there's no water. Politicians, they're making them like gods, but when they know that these politicians are supposed to represent us, that every politician is, is just like me, no he works for me, when they know this, they're gonna know they're gonna be Come people, they're going to have their dignity. I want to live with my dignity in this country. The proposal to raise taxes in the coming budget, including one on the use of social media apps like WhatsApp, is seen as the final straw that triggered people to come out onto the streets. In fact, DJ Muddy, who I mentioned at the beginning, was out on the streets as well to protest against the impact the state of the economy was having on his business. And even though the Prime Minister, Saad Hariri, went on national television to reverse some of the proposals, the public anger seems to be continuing. So is Lebanon in the midst of a revolution? Do the protests reflect a generation that's ready to look beyond a system of sectarian patronage? And is there a danger of the country returning to the days of armed conflict and war among various sectarian groups? Well, I'm joined by four guests who've been thinking about these questions and will shed some light on the direction that Lebanon may be heading in. With me in London, I'm joined by Lina Khatib, head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at the research organisation Chatham House. Lina, welcome. Thank you. And in our studio in Beirut, we have Nizar Ghanem, co-founder and director of research at Triangle Consultants and a civil society activist. Nizar, welcome to the programme. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Also in Beirut is Nada Sehnawi, an artist and a political activist. Nada, welcome to you. Thank you, Julian. And Nasib Gobril is in Beirut as well, chief economist at Biblos Bank. Nasib, welcome. Thank you, Julian. A question to all four of you to start the conversation. Uh, Lena, to you first. How different do these protests look to you? Very different. In fact, I would go as far as call what's happening a social revolution in Lebanon. This is the first time that we've seen on Sunday 
um, of last week, half the Lebanese population take to the streets to protest the government. This is unprecedented. And the protests are happening all over Lebanon, not just in Beirut. And they are basically witnessing people from all social backgrounds, religious backgrounds, geographical backgrounds. This is really a show of unity like never before. Niza, unprecedented, uh, Lina says. Do you go along with that? Definitely. Um, I've witnessed, for example, the movement in 2015, which was uh, considerably also large. This is way deeper and more radicalized, I think, than 2015. It shows that the Lebanese have decided probably to move forward with a different deal, I would say, different uh, socioeconomic political deal in Lebanon. Nassib Gobril, some context from you. How different do these protests look as far as you're concerned? They're extremely different than 2015. They're much bigger in scope. They're much deeper as well in the sense that uh, they have been triggered by a deepening socioeconomic crisis. They're also very different from the protests of 2005 that were triggered by the assassination of Prime Minister Hariri. And we saw uh, about a million persons in the streets of Beirut at the time calling for the withdrawal of the Syrian army. At that time, it was more a political and security protest and popular demand. Today, it's a purely socio-economic issue that has driven the Lebanese population to the streets and it has broken all the cliches about sectarian barriers and regional barriers. And it has broken also the fear factor from criticizing uh, their own leaders. Uh, Nada Sehnawi, to you uh, and the context and the scale of protest and what we're seeing here, how different does it look to you? There is a level of awareness that has never been reached before. And the reason for that is the pain and the long process that has led us from the end of the civil war to today, like 30 years later, at the end of the civil war, Lebanon had $1 billion in debt. Today we have $85 billion in debt. So, and nothing to account for, no electricity, no water, the country is going down the drain with billions, $84 billion, none accounted for. Let me stay with you on your word pain. In your daily life, how do you feel that pain? There is a shared pain, no matter where you are, where you live. You, you breathe a polluted air. Garbage, I mean, there is no sustainable solution regarding garbage. You, you go to public schools, they're not what we need. Young people are abroad, they need, they need to leave because they can't find work in Lebanon. So it's all on all levels. Nizar Ghanem, if, if you were to look at the process of getting to this point where people are so angry and so frustrated, garbage was mentioned... Forest fires badly handled have been mentioned in recent times. Of course, there was the WhatsApp tax. But all of this is, is being seen as the straw that broke the camel's back. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair to say that the, 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 the problem in Lebanon is actually a political economic one. It's how the, the post-Taif state was built. It was built on a power-sharing system. The parliament is divided between blocks. Uh, most of the governments were national unity governments, uh, which basically, with, with a deal with the banks, made a system to run an economy that is rent-seeking. The, the reconstruction process was, was built on borrowing rather than taxation. And you're talking about the process that's been in place since the end of the since, civil war. Yeah, definitely. And so this, this whole political economic relations that were going on since 1990 
came to a break, breaking point. Uh, already we can see the symptoms developing. 2015 was one of these breaking points. The garbage was, was a symptom, not the real uh, problem. The, the real problem is why in the first place we have a garbage crisis. It's because the oligarchs in, in government, and they are oligarchs, we are, we are ruled by, an, uh, by a coalition of oligarchs basically, uh, needed to basically divide the, the public uh, uh, funds. So to an extent, we're, we're picking individual symptoms, aren't we? Because, for example, if you, can't find, if you can't fight forest fires effectively, it's because the public services are not in place and are not properly funded to do it. Exactly. The, the government has not been uh, investing in the infrastructure. You know, Lebanon is, I think, ranked in like 121 out of 137 uh, countries in quality of roads, for example. Well, uh, the three worst countries in quality of electricity, for example. And this is with governments that have since 1990 been saying that we're taking public debt to build this infrastructure. Lina Khatib, the wider view from outside Lebanon, how much does this matter, should this matter, to its near neighbours and further afield? It should matter a lot because what's happening in Lebanon is not detached from the regional context. The conflict in Syria is linked to what's happening in Lebanon. The international sanctions on Iran have something to do with what's happening in Lebanon because the political parties in Lebanon that are in the ruling basically class, they all have patrons outside and some of them are involved in conflicts outside. For example, Hezbollah, the Lebanese uh, militia and political party, is uh, fighting alongside the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, They are there in support of Iran that is also um, supporting the Assad regime in Syria. The sanctions on Iran have meant that Iran's economic uh, situation is getting a bit pressured, and that has resulted into economic pressure on Hezbollah itself. And therefore, just like all other Lebanese political parties that are in power in Lebanon, Hezbollah last year, when a new cabinet was formed in Lebanon, insisted on getting access to certain key ministries that are seen as a lucrative source of income. And so you can see how the regional context is very much connected to what's happening in Lebanon. In which case, the point you made at the start about the fact that these protests seem to embrace pretty much everybody, irrespective of who they support and who they believe in, matters a lot. Absolutely. I mean, even some people who had traditionally supported Hezbollah um, are starting to question why Hezbollah is spending its resources on the fight in Syria rather than answering to its constituents in Lebanon. So here we have a very clear case of patronage. And even then, people are starting to question their own community leaders. And you can widen the lens and see that even in contexts in which people have traditionally followed certain sectarian leaders, they are beginning to question that relationship themselves. So there is definitely a sense of awakening across the country that's making them question not just the performance of their uh, sectarian leaders, for example, but this very relationship itself and realizing that it is actually this client-patron relation between sectarian leaders and people is, is basically the heart of the problem. We have a system, and this is, I know, a rather crude way of describing it, where top political jobs are allocated to an extent according to religion across the different religions in the country, and critics would say that that has produced a system of patronage. Pick that apart for us so that we get a grip of what we're talking about here. Since the beginning of the the, the First Republic, post-independence, after independence from France, 
it was always the, the, the idea in Lebanon that the parliament is, is basically divided between sects, which means on a quota basis. Each sect is allocated a certain share uh, in the parliament. Of course, the civil war exacerbated that situation. So you see that the post-Taif accord, you, you have this division also going deep into the bureaucracy. So all of a sudden, the bureaucracy is not there to implement policy. It's there to sustain a balance of power between the different parties. These different parties, they're run by oligarchs, basically, are also supported by regional forces. So all the oligarchs had to sustain these deep networks of, of regional and international patronage networks as well. Uh, and it was a system that was seen as a way to rebuild peace after a terrible war, wasn't it? Yeah, may I jump in here, Julian? I think one of the main problems is like in 1991, the Lebanese parliament legislated for a general amnesty law which means nobody is going to be accountable for any crime or any destruction in the country. This law allowed the militia leadership to be able to take charge of the government and to take charge of the political situation. And had we not had a a general amnesty law, this situation would have been completely different let alone the fact that there was no, nothing amongst the population, something like uh, in South Africa or Rwanda, like truth and reconciliation, for people to be able to talk to each other again in an open way, in a, in a way where f- real forgiveness could happen. Uh, and here you are now uh, among those protesting against this system, a system that you would clearly like to see change radically. If it is as it is, Do you feel powerless to actually change it meaningfully? Because at the moment, from outside, it looks as if what tends to happen is that people will be moved around, but will, broadly speaking, still occupy the top jobs in one way or another. I think the demands now are, you know, very clear. The government needs to leave. We need a new independent government from all this sectarian oligarchy. Then we need to apply the constitution. You know, there is the article 22 of the constitution that was, you know, in the constitution after Taif agreement that said we create elections, non-sectarian elections to elect a parliament, a non-sectarian parliament. And this has not been applied since 1991. So, All this sectarian uh, oligarchy is uh, illegal. It's illegal to hold sectarian uh, elections. So there are ways to move forward. Uh, Nassib Gabriel, how much does the current political system, in your view, block meaningful change? Uh, First of all, I I would like to go back to what Lina said regarding the regional context. Definitely there is a regional context and influence, but it's overrated and it has become an excuse by local politicians to uh, not act on meaningful reforms that threaten their uh, networks of patronage and their access to major positions where they can finance their political parties. Uh, Second, the poor application of the pact that ended the war, known as the Taif Accord, uh, led to the, instead of leading to a separation of powers, it led to the distribution of powers. If we properly applied that pact at the time, we would have had administrative decentralization. We would have had a non-sectarian electoral system. There are clearly major points in that pact that were ignored, totally ignored and, and poorly uh, applied. Uh, regarding the um, implementation of reforms, it has been very difficult because in the current system, when one side advances reforms and succeeds in implementing them, it's viewed by the other political forces as a loss, as a political loss. It has turned into the perception of a zero-sum game. 
And the results has been deterioration in the quality of public services. But the root is the, the poor quality of governance. And, and the World Bank's governance indicators for 2018 are very clear. Uh, we are in the bottom uh, 28% of countries in terms of regulatory quality. We are in the bit, bottom third of countries in terms of uh, accountability. We are in the bottom 26% of 214 countries in terms of government effectiveness. We are in the bottom 24% of countries in terms of the proper implementation of the rule of law. And we are in the bottom 12% of countries worldwide in terms of control of corruption. So th that's not a regional context. That's a lack of domestic political will. And that's a local structural weaknesses that has led to having structural uh, problems in the economy uh, that makes the economy vulnerable to any kind of uh, regional or domestic political or security shocks. Mention was made a moment ago of Hezbollah, the Shia militant organisation and political party. Uh, it is a major partner in the current national unity government. Lebanon's foreign minister, Gibran Basile, who's also the son-in-law of the president, was interviewed last month by the BBC's Hard Talk programme in which he was challenged over his party's alliance with Hezbollah. Hezbollah is part of the Lebanese population. Hezbollah is part of the government. Hezbollah is part of the parliament and Hezbollah is defending Lebanon while Lebanon is being aggressed along with the Lebanese army. We know Iran is funding, supplying and training Hezbollah with new precision guided missiles. Hezbollah just a couple of days ago boasted about its new anti-warship missiles. You are entirely happy for this military build-up to be taking place on your territory, not controlled by you, the Lebanese state, but controlled by Hezbollah and therefore ultimately controlled from Iran. You're happy with all of that, are you? You know, I will be happy when peace will prevail in my country and in the region and when this exceptional situation will end. And I will be happy when Israel will respect the UN resolution and will stop occupying my country and will stop aggressing the Arab rights. Then I will be happy. Why is your message on this so out of step with your own boss, the Prime Minister of Lebanon, Saad Hariri? Mr Hariri said of Hezbollah, this organization is not only Lebanon's problem, it is the entire region's problem. And they are acting in southern Lebanon contrary to our position. Uh, our Prime Minister defended Lebanon when he was uh, aggressed by Israel in the last two weeks' events. Your, your, so your, let's is, let's be is, clear, your Prime Minister describes Hezbollah as a deep problem. Why don't you? Because Hezbollah is considered by many countries as a problem. And we cannot neglect that it is considered as such. And we agree that this is not a usual situation in a country which is occupied, where you have the army and you have, you have an armed uh, group. And this is why we say we want to get rid of that situation by having peace in place. You, as one of the leading Christian parties, movements inside your country, have consistently sought partnership and alliance with Hezbollah. You provide cover for what Hezbollah is doing and what the Iranians are doing inside your own country. We have a national unity government headed by our Prime Minister Saad Hariri, in which all the Lebanese factions and political forces are present and 
Among them is Hezbollah. Lebanon's Foreign Minister Gibran Basile talking to Stephen Sacker on Hard Talk just over a month ago. Well, Hezbollah grew to prominence fighting against the Israeli occupation in the south of the country, as was referred to in that conversation. It traditionally stayed clear of politics. Um, Nizar Hanem, how did it come to be such an important partner to President Aoun? In 1990, you've got basically the, the peace process in Lebanon. Hezbollah stayed out of the government, as you have said. But the government in Lebanon was maintained under Syrian occupation until basically 2005, when massive demonstrations kicked out the Syrians and, of course, the liberation of the south with Israel. So we ended up in a situation where Hezbollah needed to protect itself. Of course, Aoun that was coming back also uh, needed to be part of the, let's say, the oligarch club. So there was an intersection of interests. Aoun needed an ally to come to the table to divide the spoils of the state. And Hezbollah needed also somebody to play ball, let's say, in the political arena in Lebanon. And what emerged out of this coalition is a national unity government where Hezbollah is most the most powerful, let's say, among the rest of the oligarchs and is kind of, it sets the tone. So Lebanon is always, is, 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 is ruled by, uh, by a coalition of fighting oligarchs, but they still maintain a certain, let's say, peace at home to run business, of course. And Lina Hatib, if there is to be a, a way out of the current crisis, given that there is this national unity government in place, Hezbollah has a role in trying to find that way out. First of all, I think we should stop using the word national unity government to refer to the current government in Lebanon, because it is very misleading. The government itself uses this term in order to claim a sense of legitimacy by saying we represent everyone in Lebanon, when the reality, as we can see on the street, is that this government has lost its legitimacy amongst Lebanese citizens. Hezbollah is part of the Lebanese uh, milieu. It's, it's, you know, going to be impossible to say whatever configuration happens next, Hezbollah is just going to disappear. So the question is, how do people find a way forward that does not cause further schisms between Hezbollah and the rest of society? Because as we can see from the skirmishes that have started to happen on the streets, and here I'm referring to certain thugs that are appearing on the streets who are pro-Hezbollah and pro its uh, other uh, Shia political uh, ally uh, called Amal. They are starting to intimidate the protesters, not just in Beirut, but even in South Lebanon, which is considered traditionally a heartland um, of Hezbollah supporters. Those two movements did deny any links to those specific Yes, of course, they they denied them. However, many reports are basically showing individuals who have been identified who are very well known as uh, supporters or members of these organizations. So I don't think the denial is fooling anybody. Um, But this is an indication of a schism uh, forming in society. So I think the way forward is to, uh, and it's going to be very difficult because Hezbollah is the only political party possessing arms in Lebanon. But the way forward is to say to Hezbollah, you are not excluded, but if you want to play by the rules just like everybody else, meaning just become a political party, contest elections uh, under a non-sectarian system, then you're very welcome to do so. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at the protests in Lebanon. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. 
You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Julian Warwicker, looking at the protests in Lebanon with my guests. With me, Lena Khatib, head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at the research organisation Chatham House, who's here in London. And in Beirut, we have Nizar Ghanem, co-founder and director of research at Triangle Consultants, Nada Sehnawi, an artist and a political activist, and Nasib Gobril, chief economist at the Biblos Bank. We began our discussion earlier looking at the factors that led to these unprecedented protests in Lebanon. Let's dig a little bit deeper and explore the economic realities in the country and why people are talking about an economic collapse. First, though, let's go back to the protests and hear the story of Sophia Fagel, a businesswoman and a mother of two teenagers. A short while ago, she told me why she's been going out to protest every day. I, I am what we call like the generation of the war because I have witnessed I was born when civil war in Lebanon has started and I was 16 when it has ended. So we were raised during the war and we have witnessed the most difficult times of Lebanon and of Beirut. And yet we have never, ever till now witnessed such an economic crisis. This is the worst ever. We can't even provide for our kids what our parents did throughout the war and throughout all the difficulties. And this is why, not because we're lacking resources, not because we're like uh, in war or anything, just because a certain group of corrupted politicians and class is like hijacking all the resources as if it's for their own. So the economic picture for you now is worse than it was when you were growing up during the civil war? Definitely, definitely. Uh, Tell me about your business because you run your own business, don't you? It is quite difficult, but since I'm doing this on my own and I like I I learned my lesson not to be involved in anything fixed and I'm starting like it's a small business, it's a startup, so I still can control my cost. But then again, I will be suffering from the income that is fluctuating. For example, now it's been like two weeks that we're not doing anything and I'm sure we're going to be suffering because all the shops where I display and all, they've been closed in downtown and all of that. So it's becoming really, it's very hard for everyone. That leads me to my next question. By by taking part in these protests, along with so many other people, aren't you effectively damaging your own business and also other businesses that can't open at the moment? This is the first time that we're all agreeing to suffer like for one week, two weeks, even one month, because every time they are gambling on that matter, that we are stopping or if we are like doing riots, then the country will stop, then your situation will be worse than before. But now there is no other solution. We have to have a change. For the first time, you feel all backgrounds, all like youth. You, you see from like kids to youth to elderly, everyone is concerned. We can't go on. Everyone in his family has someone who's not being able to go to the hospital because you you don't have any insurance. Everyone, like all the families, most of the families are sending their kids abroad. It's it's like now it's affecting every single one of us. Do you worry that there might be a crackdown against these protests at some point? We do, but I think, but, but I think it's, it's a risk to be taken. But so far, so far, even yesterday, like you have the army in the street and all of that, the army itself 
is being very understanding with the people. Because, you know, even the army guys, they are part of this people. And among those who are suffering the most with the, the lowest salaries and all of that. So we'll see how it would go. But definitely it's a risk. Sophia Fagal speaking to me about the reason that she is protesting in Lebanon at the moment. Uh, Nara Sekhnwari Nawi, you heard me ask Sophia about the fact that by protesting, in the short term at least, there is potential damage to her own business and maybe to other businesses. Was that in your mind at all when you started taking action here? Julian, there is an awareness amongst everybody who is in the street, from Tripoli to Saida to Tyre in southern Lebanon, that although the oligarchy, the sectarian oligarchy, are supported by opposing regional parties like Iran or Saudi Arabia, they are in agreement in the government to pillage the country. And this is now, you know, an awareness, a well-shared awareness. So therefore, People are not fooled anymore by these oppositions. This is the first point. The second point is we were on the brink of collapse. It's not like we were like, okay, sort of okay, maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. But today, people did not know whether the next day they would have their salary cut in half. So, I mean, when you don't have anything else to lose, you go and you you demonstrate and you try to change the situation. And clearly, you need to tell this government, and this is what we've been telling, and the people in the street have been telling this government, you have lost legitimacy, you need to resign. And the paper that Hariri came with and the president supported today is a farce, is a joke. I mean, if you take just one item, privatization, even people who are for privatization, okay, let's say we are all agree, which is not the situation. I mean... Who, who trusts this government to go through privatization? I mean, these are wolves. How, how would you trust them? So if roads are blocked, if schools are closed, if universities are closed, if people can't go to work, if Sophia can't conduct her business in the way that she would like to, it is all worth it in the short term because of what you are aiming to in, beyond this. It's in the hope of a better future because this government needs to leave. They need to resign. They need to go home. And we need to have a new independent government. Uh, Let me talk more about the economics of this. Nassib Gabriel, you were very critical of the government earlier on. As you'll only be too well aware, some people are critical of the government, yes, but also critical of the banks. So how do you respond to the latter? Well, before getting to the banks... This current government is completely was completely out of touch with the day-to-day needs of the Lebanese population. And if you go back to three years, the lady you interviewed said that uh, the situation was better during the war. Mm. But, but before the past three years, we had heard a lot of promises. The Lebanese people heard a lot of promises about change and reforms and improvement in economic conditions and fighting corruption. And for the past three years, things have deteriorated steadily on a yearly basis. Today, the Lebanese citizens is forced to pay two electricity taxes. Households have to pay three water bills. They have to pay the fifth highest cost of mobile telecommunications. The education fees have increased after the massive increase in public sector wages and salaries. The waste management crisis that erupted in the summer of 2015, still up until today, has no solution. 
we have a polluted environment that hasn't even been addressed. So the government has ignored all of this and started talking about reforms. But the translation of these reforms is higher taxes on the citizens and the private sector. This is their measure. This is their, their version of an austerity budget for 2019. And the 2020 budget before the October 17 protest started was also loaded with, with hidden taxes and indirect taxes. And there was no attempt on the expenditure side to reduce expenditures in a credible and serious way. So it's, it shouldn't be a surprise at all that the people took to the streets right. in, in this environment. And there is a clear confidence crisis between the Lebanese people and the private sector on one hand, and this government and the political ruling class behind it on the other hand. I fully, un- I fully understand that all four of you are agreed on where the government has gone wrong here. But I just want to drill down into this issue of the banks, yes. because you know, you're aware of the criticism that there is of the banks, of the fact that there have been solid profits enjoyed by the banks by financing deficit spending for nearly three decades. Is that not true? And therefore, do the banks not have to do something significant to help rebuild the economy here? Well, when this trend started in the mid-1990s, when the government needed to rebuild the infrastructure and it needed to rebuild state institutions at the same time. The finance ministry was working with pen and paper. There was no even computers in the finance ministry, and it needed to put in place the infrastructure to collect taxes. The only side that stepped in to provide financing to the government was the banking sector in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. The promises of support from Arab countries did not materialize, and uh, other support also took time to come. So the banking sector needed to step in to maintain stability, to support the stability of the currency, which is a factor of confidence in the country, to give time to the government. Right, uh, but that was then. The point, I'm, the point yes. I'm getting at is that now you're so, earning so, yes, high yes, interest yes, now, financing now, the national debt. Yes, in 2002, in 2002, there was a big conference held in Paris to uh, move forward with drastic reforms. Uh, and the government at the time presented a comprehensive program for restructuring the public sector, for uh, upgrading the infrastructure. And it needed financing to take time, to have enough time to put these reforms in place. And that was 2002? 2002. The banking sector contributed by buying $3.6 billion in treasury bills at 0%, which gave breathing room to the government to implement those reforms. So the banking system contributed $7.7 billion and the international community contributed about $4 billion. I get that. So the point I'm now making is that there is high interest being enjoyed by the banks who are financing the national debt. And I just I'll, want to I'll get tell to, you, to whether or not that is the case. No, no, I'll tell you, you, of, of course, they, they, have been, they have been supporting the stability of the currency as well as the stability of public finances and of the economy and therefore social stability. But they have been calling since 2002 for the implementation of these reforms okay. to reduce that burden on the banking sector. We have a very high level of tax evasion. The banks are the only sector that declares its entire income and pays all of their taxes. And, and there's nothing that's being done on, on the on the tax evasion front. The problem is not with the banks. I wanted to give you a a chance to answer those charges because, as you well know, they exist, and I suspect Nizagana might have put them. Are you convinced by the argument you've just heard that the banks have had a role over a significant period in trying, to an extent, to ease what would have been an even more serious economic situation? 
I think Mr. Nasib is evading the main problem, which is most of the banks are controlled by already by politicians. That's not true. 18, That's just 18, not true. 18 out of, in a major study by uh, Jad Shahman. That, that has no credibility. There's, there's 18, it has no credibility. 18 out of 20 banks have major shareholders linked to political elite. That's not true. That's there's, simply there's, not true. This is inaccurate information. I'm sorry. That's not true. My grandfather was, was a member of parliament in the first Lebanese parliament. According to Jad Shaban, that means I control part of the banking sector. No, but, but this is how, how, how low the credibility of this study is. But would you, would, you, would you disagree that the assets of, like, for example, the assets of the banking sector is $199 billion in 2013. It's 440% of Lebanon's GDP. These banks need to put this money somewhere. And they've used with a deal with the major oligarchs from Hariri's time to put all this money in the banking sector and in financing the public debt with high interest rate. So much, so much profit has been made by the banking sector by financing this public debt problem. And now they're trying to, to say that it's just a governance issue. It's deeper than that. There's an issue that the banks have been supporting and financing this whole misgovernance and mismanagement of Lebanon. And when the time comes that somebody has to pay the bill, they say, well, it's not us. It's the bad governance okay. of the oligarchs. And they throw them under the bus. If you're going to bring down the oligarchy, we have to bring the whole system that kept the oligarchy in place. One more on this, if I may, because I don't want to get too bogged down in the banking issues. And clearly the two of you are not going to agree on that. And I I, I get that. And that's fine. And I hope you both feel you've had the chance to put your point. But I want to bring it back to um, the remarks of the president, because uh, I think, Nada, you mentioned uh, President Aoun. Uh, I want to let you hear what he's been saying in recent hours and then get a thought from you as to where this takes things. Because after a week of silence throughout the protests so far... President Aoun has given a public address and has said that he will be a guarantor for the protesters' demands. Today, as we speak, the state auditor is working on auditing billions. All those responsible for embezzling public funds will be held liable. Corruption has no religion or sect. Let's put all the cards on the table. Let's expose the corrupt and leave the matter in the hands of the judiciary. Uh, Nada Sehnawi, what did you think when you heard that? I think he does not understand or he does understand that when he says that he wants to hold the people, the persons who embezzle public funds accountable. I mean, he says, he said clearly that he wanted to guarantee the judiciary system. And he doesn't really understand that this is not how it works. It's not to the president of the republic to offer a guarantee to the judiciary system. One of our main demands is an independent judiciary system as an independent power. And here there is not one word from Mr. Aoun on that level. And this is very serious. And this is why, I mean, he's not convincing. Actually, you can see people did not leave the street. People were even angrier. And also he supported the economic reforms, which by all analysis are either non-implementable or just like a facade. I mean, and some of them are too little, too late, and some of them are outright dangerous, like the privatization. He wants to bring a, a financial expert to study how we can privatize everything what is left. I mean, we hear, I mean, the street and everybody, that we want to see how we can increase the theft. I mean, this is, this is what we hear. We don't trust them. They need to leave. Uh, Lena Khatib, what did you make of the president's statement? Well, it was really rather 
shallow and uh, didn't really say anything. It didn't really address the problem. The people on the streets um, have just largely dismissed it. And of course, also questioned the fact that it was clearly not given live. And that led to all kinds of speculation about whether the president is even fit to rule. Were you expecting more from him? Well, frankly, I don't think the status quo is uh, going to budge anytime soon. The status quo, political elites are counting on people just getting bored, you know, abandoning the protests altogether. I don't think we're going to see any meaningful concessions from the status quo. And meanwhile, I don't think the street will accept anything less than the full departure of the politicians in the status quo. And if I may just add one thing. As someone who looks at the Middle East as a whole and not just Lebanon, I am a bit concerned about this whole issue around the banks, not because the banks are not part of the problem. Unfortunately, they have contributed to the problem. But this focus on the banks is also a bit politicized. And I say this having looked at Iraq. In Iraq, calls for accountability were being used by certain political entities to discredit their opponents. And we are seeing a bit of that playing out in Lebanon today in the sense that it is Hezbollah mainly that seems to be leaking certain information about corruption linked to the banking sector that basically lists people from all kinds of political backgrounds except Hezbollah. And that's probably because that's not how Hezbollah itself is making its money uh, in Lebanon. And so people just need to be aware that even something that may look like a call for accountability can be used by, by the system to kind of get at their opponents. But at the same time, to me, this is also a sign that some cracks are beginning to form in the political status quo. Right. Let me take it forward with all four of you in the last um, 10 minutes or so of the programme. And clearly, these protests are, in all of your minds, very different and much more significant than the ones we have seen before. And you are all highly critical of the current government and the way it is structured and the system within it within which it works. But realistically, these people are not going to give up power without a significant struggle, are they? That is true, and that's what uh, we are expecting, to have a face-off for a while. But it doesn't mean that if the government ends up by resigning, which it should do, that uh, we will end in, in a collapse. That's not true at all. When the government resigns in Lebanon, there is a caretaker time until a new government is formed, so there will be no vacuum as such. It should be replaced by a government of 16 ministers at the maximum of experts, whether constitutional experts or financial or economic experts in their field. Right. So this is the kind of technocratic government, is it, that people have been talking about? More of an experts, okay. a, a government of experts okay. rather than pure we'll, we'll, technocrats. Okay. We'll, we'll call it different names. Well, Nada, yes, come in on that. I mean, how do you achieve mostly independence, as you've just called for? I think there are many Lebanese who are capable, who are independent, who have expertise, who have the common good at heart, which is not the situation of the actual oligarchy. So there are Lebanese and we have the constitution to follow and to apply. So it's not impossible. The void and the danger is to keep this government in place and in charge because this is the government that is leading the country in the abyss. Right. And Nizar Ghanem, does, does that mean significant reform of the actual electoral system in order to get to, to, to where Nader is, is described? I mean, yeah, it's in the Constitution. There is the Article 22 that says we need to hold elections, non-sectarian elections to elect a parliament. And that parliament would then choose 
President, and then when minister. that parliament is elected, then right. we can have a, we can have a senate that represents the communities. Nisa, so, on that, yeah, yeah. I agree with what what has been said by Neda and Nasib. I think that right now what we need we we do need to enter into basically a new social contract and a new constitution, which means that eradication of sectarianism from the lower house, creation of an upper house that actually puts the major issues that the Lebanese fight over in terms of identity or like war and peace in the upper house, in the Senate. Public persecutors need to move in areas of corruption fast, even faster than the resignation of the government. I think the people on the street are interested in that. They want to see public officials going to trial. The sooner the better and movement into accountability and adjusting into a new electoral law that produces the third republic and with it a new socioeconomic deal as well. But I'm struck by the scale of change you're talking about. Uh, A new electoral system, public officials going to trial, a Senate. I mean, how do you get from where we are today to what you've just described? You know, unfortunately, the chicken are coming home to roost and political elites of this country have done nothing. There was a, I think, there's a book, The the Art of Not Governing. Mm. uh, No, I get that, but I'm I'm sure... This is why the people are in the streets. It's going to take some time. By the way, I don't believe that anything is sure because we also have many, many... Of course, contradictions going on, like the issue of Hezbollah, like the regional play out. Mm. This is why, anyway, the Lebanese did not venture before, I think, to f- this full sweeping demonstrations. Because I think they, they understand that it's very hard to change things in Lebanon. Hard and, and potentially risky. I mean, are, are people fearful of, of, of serious instability and, and maybe something worse during this period that you've just described? This is exactly my point. The people are willing to take that risk. Lena, Lena Hatib, come in on that scale of change. Well, one of my very trusted contacts who was working in one of the ministries in Lebanon handling a lot of foreign aid coming into the country told me that if it hadn't been for corruption and money being basically stolen, the foreign aid coming to Lebanon that was meant to go to the Syrian refugees and actually practically never reached them would have been enough to pay off the public debt in two years. So I think that gives us the answer that without corruption, things might actually be fixed a lot quicker than many would have expected. You identified an issue earlier on, and Nada, perhaps I can put this to you, the idea that the hope, perhaps, among the elite, to put that in quotes, is that eventually these protests will run out of steam. Can you imagine that happening? Everything can happen, but today the mood is not that at all. People are angrier today after the President of the Republic spoke. It was clear that he didn't understand what was going on or pretended that he was not aware of what was going on and uh, he did not address the issues. The issues is that the government needs to resign, that a new government of independent need to be organized, to be in place and prepare for non-sectarian elections. And most importantly, if you want to hold people in charge accountable, you need an independent judiciary power. I mean, this is key. Let me come to all four of you finally, because we've talked in quite big picture terms about long-term change. But given that changes tend to be gradual and certain measures will happen and then certain others will follow. If there was one thing that you could do now or recommend that was done now that might start that road to change, Nizar Ghanem, what would that be? I would have an um, independent public prosecutor right now basically calling the politicians for investigations. I think this is it's a serious problem in Lebanon that there is no accountability and this is what the people want to see. Uh, Nasib Gabriel, for you, what would that one 
measure to start the process of change? What would that Well, be? we need to restore the confidence between the people and the state uh, and its institutions. And that would start with an interim government of experts that would apply the existing laws. We don't need a new electoral law. There is a Ta'if Accord that has clear clauses that says we need a Senate, uh, we need administrative decentralization. That's enough to restore confidence and pave the way and give time to a more in-depth look of the political system. Nada Sehna, we pick something that you think might start the road to change. I mean, the government needs to resign. We need a new independent government, not only technocrats, independent mostly, because technocrats could serve the oligarchy. So this is not the solution. Independent is the key. We need accountability. Definitely, we need a judiciary system. And we, we need to apply the Constitution because the Article 22 has not been applied. It has been neglected. And therefore, this is why we have a sectarian parliament for the past 30 years. And we need a non-sectarian government. We need a non-sectarian parliament, non-sectarian election, and then a Senate that would represent the communities. Lina, Hatib, pinpoint something that you feel would start that road to change. Well, I mean, what has been said, I think, is a very good start. I would just add a word of caution, which is dealing with Hezbollah's constituents. They are the elephant in the room. A lot of them, as I said, have begun to question Hezbollah, but most of them remain very, very loyal. And that's partly because of belief and partly because of fear. So there needs to be measures to kind of make sure that these people don't feel that this is a movement against them and end up causing some sort of sectarian strife in Lebanon. At a time of great turmoil, are you all still hopeful about the outcome here? I am very hopeful. Um, hopeful not necessarily because of the political change that might happen, but hopeful because of the social change that has already happened. I think this demand for a new social contract is just revolutionary in Lebanon. And I'm not someone who uses the word revolution uh, quite often, um, but I think it does apply. And that is, that is the beginning of long-term change. Right. So there's hope in London. Is there hope in Beirut? Yes, I think it took 30 years to reach that level of awareness in the street. And you, when you listen to the people in the street, each one of them has an amazing level of awareness and reading of the situation that is very clear. I think this gives us not only hope, but faith that we can do it. Niza, Nasi, hopeful or um, worried? I'm always hopeful, I think, by nature. Um, the people have given us hope in the sense that they've decided to move forward regardless of the risks and regardless of the cost. And now the ball is basically in the oligarchs' field. They are tasked with doing something. Nasib, final word. It is the youth in the streets who have gave us hope. Uh, It's the fact that they demonstrated that they do not have apathy. There is no apathy and there is no indifference among the Lebanese youth. That's where the hope comes from. Okay. That's it this week on The Real Story. Thank you to all four of you for taking part in this programme. Uh, Lina Hatib, Nizar Ganem, Nada Sehnawi, Nasib Gobril, thank you all. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And we'd love you to hear your thoughts on the programme that you've just heard. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you very much for listening.